Hey, you are listening to PayPals, and today I am interviewing my pal Jeff. Once upon a time, I went to a co-working space in Taipei called The Hive. And then I was there maybe once a week, but that's another story in itself. Anyway, The Hive is where I met Jeff, and it became immediately apparent that we had a lot in common. And so we built a ritual of going to Sushi Road to talk about our lives and shared struggles. There were identity things, expat things, Taiwan things, love things, exercise things. But in the end, we talked the most about two things, money and life fulfillment. And this episode contains a lot of that. Jeff is a BBC, and he has been living in Taipei for about a decade with no plans to leave. After all, he just got married this year. He has been deep in the crypto DeFi space for as long as I've known him. And actually, aside from people who have actually paid me money to work for them as an employee, he might be the person in my life who has made me the most money. He is also an extremely high-level rock climber. And this is a pattern I'm beginning to see emerge with high performers in general. I think that's a big part of the reason that people start to do marathons and triathlons and such. It's one of the laws of physics, right? A body in motion tends to stay in motion, and the opposite is also true. In this episode, we talk about the pursuit of ego in various phases of life, wanting to decapitate himself and replace his head with a white kid's head, his adventures in therapy and self-identity, and why he thinks rock climbing is the perfect and most challenging sport. Thanks, Jeff. After you have X amount of money, well, what now? <laughs> what to do with life now? How to capture a direction and meaning? I mean, I think during those conversations, I feel like we already knew that like, after a certain level, the, basically the happiness curve is flat. Like you, you don't get any additional happiness from this unless your desire is to have a bigger number. And I'm not even sure you could call that happiness. That's like a different, that's an entirely different graph. Right? That's like a, I don't know, my status versus other people kind of curve i think there's a daddy issue curve but yeah <laughs> personally but okay yeah so what are the things that you've spent money on in the past couple of years that like you feel like has actually improved your quality of life uh, when we used to talk about this we used to be like okay under 50 dollars, under okay mm. under 100 dollars, but like mm. you know we can open it up a little bit more now yeah i think for sure we're sitting in my flat that it's probably the best flat i've ever had and I think, like, I could live in this flat for a long time if, you know, at this kind of level. Yeah. It's new, it's spacious, it's bright. Like, I, I definitely think, like, I think maybe when we first chatted, I was probably still living in a much smaller place. It was nice, but it's much smaller. Yeah. And I think having this extra space, yeah, definitely improves my quality of life. There's something about being comfortable and happy at home, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think like during the times when I was living in a small place, it was much more about, you know, going to different coffee shops and seeing everything outside. And Right. Do you host here sometimes? Oh, you're hosting all the time. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually do that in Bangkok as well. It's because I'm like not embarrassed or to have people over because the other place that I lived in Taiwan is like, well, I call my ghost home. All my neighbors are 80 and 90. You got to figure there's a lot of ghosts in that building. My grandparents were there 50 years ago. So. Yeah, your, your place doesn't even have like an elevator, right? A lift. Uh, no. Yeah, yeah. No, they don't. They didn't, ha they didn't have Basic those. Basic quality of life. Is yes. A lift. That's very true. That's having very a concierge. True. So having a place that has a concierge. Like, so I've lived in a couple of nice places in the past. One of them didn't have a concierge, but it was a nice flat. It was just kind of small. It was a big one bedroom, and I think it was perfect for what it was. But yeah, then girlfriend, now wife, um, really want a concierge because she gets a lot of packages. And honestly, it makes a big difference. It like does. I do a lot of Uber Eats yeah. and just not having to go down or even just let them up. Like I think in that place, I would have to like, you know, pick up the phone and, and let them up. Right. I get my food delivered by the concierge to my door. It's nice. Yeah. It makes a big difference. It does. Yeah. It does. Okay, so accommodation slash home, that's a pretty, you know, increases the quality of life quite a bit. Something else? Well, if you have a bigger place, you need to clean it, so cleaner. Cleaner. Yeah. I mean, that saves you how many hours a week? Hours, hours, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I've never fully cleaned this place myself. I've never cleaned this place to the level that my cleaner cleaned it to, so yeah. I don't even know how many hours. But I would say easily with, you know, laundry plus all of, you know, clean the floor, Probably five, five, six hours a week at least. I mean, she spends probably eight, nine hours. Yeah. But it's probably stuff that I wouldn't even do. Like, yeah, that's true. Like, like she sometimes, I mean, I guess it's above and beyond cleaning, but she cuts fruit and puts in the fridge for me. Oh, she's like a, that's like a mom cleaner. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she does, she has services like making lunch and stuff, but I think 
I think I'm okay with my Uber Eats. Oh, yeah. So that's the next level, right? Having like some kind of uh, personal food chef, right? Like meal planning, basically. Meal planning. So yeah. why, why are you not at going into that one yet? I thought about it. I thought about it. Um, yeah. A friend of mine, he, he has meals delivered, I think. She has 10 meals a week, basically. So it gets delivered on like a Monday and a Thursday. You can put some in the fridge. So he has two meals per day for all the weekdays. And I think he, he prepares a meal at the weekends and that's it. Okay. So he's got all of his, I don't know, calories and protein sorted out, like that kind of thing. I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if he's planning to that level, but I think it's more just about not having to think about that. I'm on board. Yeah. I'm on board with that because I think he's trying to work out a lot as well. Yeah. I'm guessing. Okay. So that's the money thing. And then the other part is this the kind of lack of direction thing that comes along with some amount of money, right? This is interesting actually, because I just watched the second episode of Arnold. It's a oh, yeah. documentary about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And I haven't got up to his, his, his last episode yet, and his last episode's about politics. Yeah. But the first two episodes are about him being a bodybuilder, and the second one is about being a movie star, right? Mm. And I think, like, there's a lot of parallels. Like, I'm not saying I'm anywhere close to Arnold Schwarzenegger's level. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. but I think his first two pursuits are an ego pursuit, right? He wants the status of being the best in the world at bodybuilding. He wants to be the biggest movie star, right? Like, I think the last episode, I only watched it last night, it was very fresh in my mind. But he has this kind of competition with Sylvester Stallone for, during the 80s to being the oh, biggest right. action hero, basically. Yeah, right. And, you know, he even goes past that to, like, you know, doing stuff like Twins with Danny DeVito and, like, he does comedy and True Lies. Right. And so he wants to be the best at everything. And eventually he gets to a point where I think he has, like, open heart surgery yep i mean he doesn't really talk about it too much at the end of the episode but you know i think basically he realizes that you know you've achieved everything you want to do it's pretty much all the same and like all i'm doing right now is i don't have so many years of my life left i need to do something that makes me actually happy i don't know if if, if him being a politician makes him happy but he talks about it in the end of his episode like you know giving back yeah and like he doesn't need the money at this point right no he doesn't need the status he, right. everyone knows who he is right. so I mean, I don't know if it's another ego pursuit. I guess I'll find out in the episode. But I think <laughs> at some point you need to like stop pursuing things for status and money and yeah. an ego and, and yeah. start you know looking internally. And I don't think that's a big secret. Like, I think many people talk about this. Um, it's not a secret. Many people talk about it. Not that many people, number one, get to that point and not that many people, number two, will be able to stop that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like, and it's, it's easy for, you know, people like us to say because we're not, you know, wanting for, you know, shelter and food and like anything on, on that kind of level. So I think at some point you get your basic needs met. Mm. And then at some point you're pushing ego status and money and power. That's true. And at some point you realize that it's not fulfilling you. Sounds like you realized this process in yourself. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Well, I mean, because you start to do things and you're like, oh, this is not... This is not something I want to be doing forever, or I, I don't want to be keeping. I don't want to be doing this. Yeah. To exchange hours for dollars, right? Uh, yeah. Weren't you doing that for like years? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, an interesting thought was that before, I don't know, before the last five, six, seven years, I spent probably like five to ten hours a week working. Yeah. Tell me, tell me more about that because I always think that's such an interesting, but kind of smart way to live. Yeah. So I, I think like there's something about hyper optimizing like i don't know what you could call it but during that time i was very aware that i wanted to make as much money as i could but not put any time into it uh, that's <laughs> the uh that's the dream huh? yeah. but but i think like i could put more i could have put more hours in i could have tried to get up to you know 30 40 50 hours a week and be making a ton of money so i can get more specific so at the time i was teaching javascript online i was teaching web development and I'd only been a coder for like four or five years. So I was mm. probably like 24 at the time. Yeah. And honestly, like I didn't feel qualified to do this job. And they were paying me $150 for like one lesson. And that lesson is only 30 minutes. So, 30 minutes? Yeah. So like it depends on like, wow. I, I mean, I, I have to like mark their homework and stuff like that. Yeah. And I you know, had to have communications outside. But I probably was averaging more than $100 an hour at like 24 years at 24 old. 24 years remotely. old. That's amazing. Yeah. And... It wasn't like I was working 40 hours a week. I mean, I, it was very difficult to work 40 hours a week, even if I wanted to, and try to make a ton of money. But I think because of that limitation, like, I had to basically get my own students. And, you know, you have your own, like, portfolio, and they pick you as a teacher. But I probably had, like, 10 to 15 students, and anywhere from, like, 5 to 10 hours a week of work. And so I was probably making, you know, well, 
five, six thousand dollars a month in a country that you can probably live pretty comfortably on like two thousand dollars. What's the oh come on man? That's lifestyle creep. What is the average salary here? It's probably around well, it depends if you're talking about Taipei, it's probably around fifteen hundred dollars. Taipei, Taipei, yeah. yeah. It's probably about fifteen hundred dollars. There um, you go, yeah. Yeah. So you're balling out of control at twenty four. Yeah, and like if you think about it, like that's probably like graduate kind of age and if you're in the UK and you're making that kind of money, I mean, you're doing okay in London, but you know where, like, you can't be living anywhere. It's particularly nice. Right. And you're probably commuting every day. It's still pretty difficult. And so the difference between, like, four times the average salary and, like, 1.5 or, yeah. you know what, to be honest, it's probably close to, like, average salary in the UK. Maybe, like, 1.5 times. Okay. Yeah. yeah. In London, sorry, not the UK. Obviously, okay. the UK is a little bit lower. Right. So I enjoyed that, yeah. I spent a lot of hours climbing, probably like six days a week climbing. Yeah. I, I learned to live very frugally because at the beginning, like I was only, you know, only had one student, mm. two students. So I was only making like a few hundred dollars a month, but yeah. it's that soon grew and my lifestyle didn't grow really. Okay. But I would say like, I was really, really happy during that time. I mean, it's when I met my, my current partner um, and yeah. it's because I had the kind of the bandwidth to to meet people and the bandwidth to kind of play and be happy and i just do things i wanted to do basically in my early 20s i was exchanging hours for dollars but i was doing it on the minimum i needed to do and spending maximum amount of hours doing other things like playing in the park we go slacklining go climbing yeah going outdoors that sounds like what people do when they're like much older right we literally so me and my friend jason we had a weekly slack lining calisthenics like meetup that we created every tuesday at like 2 30 i'd like finish my lessons like one my one hour of lessons and i would yeah. just ride a u-bike over to <laughs> to linson park which is just over there oh yeah right and we'd set up the slack line set up rings and we'd be there for like three four hours like we and it was great like we would just sit there have beers slack line and people would just we had this kind of aura people used to come hang out with us That's and cool. you know yeah. Some of are good friends of us today, and we some people would come and do yoga, and yeah, it was, um, I don't know, it was a very, I mean, I'm still very happy now, but like that was a happy time as well. And then everyone else in the park at that time was like 80? <laughs> just like retired. You know what, there's quite a lot of families. Retirees. We had a lot of kids coming over and just be like, oh, oh okay. can we play, play on the slack line, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I would say like the average age, well, it's probably closer to our age, but only because there was 80-year-olds and children. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. So you find them the, the average yeah, yeah. age. The mean, the there. mean, yeah. The mean, thank yeah. you, yes. So with the documentary of Arnold, you saw that he like he just kind of stopped focusing on himself. Is that what you're saying that you also did these few years too? Yeah, so my wife recently asked me, like, if I die tomorrow or if I die today, like, would be anything that you would regret not doing? Hmm. And the only thing I could really think of, like, I thought of a lot of things, but I was like, um, I don't know if this is actually regret this, but the only thing is, you know, having children. Yeah. But I'd, I thought of lots of other things, you know, like climbing. I could climb a harder grade. I could get more rich. I could train a bit harder and have a certain body or, you know, look. I don't think there's anything that, you know, really attracts me. I, there's nothing deep in my mind that says, like, oh, you really need to do this before, you know, you die. Because those are all about you. Those are all about your ego. Yeah, yeah. It's like so. you're all about your own accomplishments. And I think when people get to a point when they're comfortable with themselves, it's like, why why care as much? Yeah, I think so. I'm still not 100% sure having kids isn't about ego. I don't know, but... Okay, that's interesting. What are, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Like, I haven't thought too hard about it. Okay. I don't want to be that kind of parent that, like, lives vicariously through their kid and is disappointed when their kid doesn't end up the way they want them to be. And yeah, I don't think it's about that. But, you know, maybe I don't know until I'm actually a parent. Well, do you have a, do you have a strong couple of reasons why you do want to be a parent? Honestly, like, I think there's something, there's something biological about it. It's like chemicals in my brain just being like, <laughs> this is something you need to do. Yeah. But I also think, like, there's something about interacting with a little person that is this kind of completely blank slate, has no preconceptions about anything there's something about that that is kind of wonderful i mean I interact with my wife's um nieces all the time and yeah i mean there's i think there's something wonderful about that and i think i'm gonna learn a lot more about myself i think that's what i'm excited for like not just like what i can help the kid with yeah. and what they're gonna become i think that's been really cool too but also like what kind of person i become because of this oh shit is that ego <laughs> is that yeah about? yeah totally totally <laughs> and, I, and i think like i mean this brings me kind of like segues into a different topic but yeah. like the idea of the best way to live your life is to be selfish 
Okay. And to kind of get have your needs filled, like clean up your house first before you, you know, you start to try and you know help other people's houses. You're not in any place to kind of tell people how to do things or help with other people if your your shit isn't sorted, right? That's true. You're just not in the mental space, or you don't have the bandwidth, or you don't have the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that's a little bit off topic, and we can go into that later if you like. But uh, I think with kids, I think yeah, like I said, I think it's a little bit ego. Like there is some self selfishness about wanting to see what kind of person I'm gonna be. But I think like it's all about motivation, right? I think if it's not about yourself, a lot of the time I think it's less motivating, yeah. and you need to kind of align those incentives. I think it's gonna be good for you know your partner, your family, your kids, your friends. If you're looking after yourself at the same time as looking after them, like you don't want to be you know, in a relationship where you're essentially doing all these things to serve another purpose, serve your partner's needs if they don't meet your own needs, right? So I think that's like, again, another topic, but like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the idea of just sorting your shit out first is the most important because then you have bandwidth to kind of expand to other people's needs, right? Yeah. What kind of parent do you think you would be? How demanding would you be? I think about this all the time. <laughs> this fucking kid's gonna play piano I mean all the stuff that I did that I had a good experience with which was piano uh, soccer football and then uh, boy scouts and stuff like that but I don't know is this too much so I haven't thought about this in too much detail but I would say I would be aggressively pushing opportunities to my child but not as like tiger mom tiger dad about it yeah so it's like okay if you have zero interest in this thing like I'm not going to like push you yeah like, I will aggressively, like, if I think at this point, right, it's still like, you know, you're still an open book and you, you still haven't made a decision on this. Why don't we try, you know, something that I like, you know, like climbing or mm. whatever, right? Slacklining, yeah. outdoors. Yeah. If you hate it, then I'll help you to understand all these other opportunities, all these other doors that exist. Because, you know, I see. as a child, your mind is very, uh, I guess, one dimensional in the, in the sense that you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. And so I'm just going to put doors out there to show you what other things are out there. Yeah. It piques your interest and then I'll support you in whatever you want to do. I think that's the kind of dad I would like to be. I don't know if that ends up being that way. Would you be a good cop or a bad cop? I think I'd definitely be good cop, yeah. Ariel's bad cop? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. uh, I have that in common with her. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on what you mean by bad cop. I think like... Strict, disciplinarian. I think so. I think we're we're very different. I think like... Ariel's a bit more the anxious type. Oh, okay. And I'm much more the relaxed type. Yeah. But I think I would be bad cop if it came down to like a very, I don't know, like if it pushed my boundaries too far, I'd probably be end up being the bad cop and then Ariel probably switched to being good cop. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so for the real, the real serious shit, The real dad. serious stuff maybe, yeah. Yeah, fear when dad comes home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's how I grew up. <laughs> <laughs> That's the source of my daddy issues. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, so I remember the first time meeting you, it was at the Hive. And then, I don't know, for the past few years, I've kind of had this thing about going to talk to other guys. Does that sound weird? I mean, <laughs> not not if you don't make it weird. <laughs> uh, it's like, I, I sometimes assume that other guys that look cool, like you, are like, I sometimes like kind of assume they're douches. Mm. I don't know, it's like this weird internal wiring I have. I mean, maybe it's a biological thing, right? It's like a... It's like a, oh, here's a, a threat. Yeah, yeah, like an alpha thing, right? It's like, Could okay, be. You, and you used to assume that, and this is kind of natural as well, like hum, human nature ends up being like, if you if you feel like you're alpha, you feel like you're near the top, you're, you, you tend to have more confidence and there's this kind of outward appearance that you look a little bit arrogant. Mm. And not everyone's like that, mm. but like, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's like a a biological detector like this person is a little bit confident a little bit arrogant like yeah right right i should be i should be wary be wary yeah, that's yeah, right yeah. so i was wary of this bbc in um in the hive <laughs> yeah and then i think you told me at that time you were doing in a like an events company and i was like during covid okay yeah that didn't work out <laughs> <laughs> really <laughs> i'm so shocked yeah you should probably define bbc as well big black exactly yeah I mean, like, maybe you can define it in, like, tell me how you ended up in Taiwan, because, like, I was thinking about it the other day, and I was, like, unclear still. Um, yeah, so BBC stands for British Born Chinese. It's the, it's the lesser known of the ABC, BBC. <laughs> I mean, do they say CBC in ca Canada? That they, kind of thing? they try to make it a thing, but it's not. What about Australian Born Chinese? ABC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think it was a mix of a lot of things. So the most direct was just, like... At the time, wanted to 
travel and I was at risk of being laid off in my job and that ended up kind of triggering my Asia trip. That was in London, right? That was in London, yeah. Okay. I'd been graduating maybe a year from university. I was working in an agency and yeah, I mean, it was a time in my life where, I mean, I was early 20s. I had a lot of identity issues with kind of who I was, being Chinese, born in the UK, not really speaking the language of, of Mandarin, but not really fitting in, you know, kind of anywhere. Do you feel like you were a white person or did you feel like you just were different? Did you think about that growing up? Yeah, I'm kind of sad. Like, I remember when I was like five or six years old, like, I remember coming home and telling my mom, like, oh, I wish I could, as a five-year-old, being like, oh, I wish I could cut off my head and have like a white person's head. And oh, I, whoa, I, whoa. I think about that, like, you know, in the future and just being like, I told my, I told my wife about this when we were dating. Yeah. And she, she, she just started laughing. <laughs> like me right now. <laughs> yeah. but, but then I was just like, but I was just like, it's so, I'm thinking about it, I was like, it's so sad that like, yeah. To, to to realize that that's like a, a very pure, natural thought when, you know, everyone around you is like white, basically. Yeah, that's just a pure and honest reaction, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just, and it was like a sad reaction when I was when I was a child. Not not my reaction to myself as a child, but I just feel like as a child, not feeling the same as, as other, other people, right? It's like you yeah. don't, you don't, you're not assimilated, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was tough. But I think like... In my early years, like during my teenagers, I tried to contend with. Like, I had a lot of racism in my life in probably my, my teens, probably like thirteen to sixteen. You know, people were really mean in secondary school, high school. Okay, shit. Yeah, I don't know if that's like. I mean, this is like kind of important formative years where I don't feel like I fit in anywhere. I was always in the kind of um, the I guess like the loser crowd, if you will. You know, there's like mm. the jocks. I don't know if they're called in. Like the kind of sp- the jocks, sports yeah. people, and then there's like yeah. there's a lot of South Asians, so I would say it's basically like the Indian crew. Oh right, right, right. And then yeah. and then and you then and then you Leon. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, no, Leon wasn't in my school, but oh, okay. uh, um, yeah, like I was part of the the other group basically, which was it. like not any particular race, not any particular yeah, yeah, just the the outcasts, if you will. It's hard to feel that this there's no connection between this and you ending up in Asia, right? Oh no, I would say it's like. <laughs> very directly related yeah 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 like when you feel like you don't fit in like where do you want to go somewhere where everyone looks like you or you're the majority race exactly exactly and i mean that kind of triggered me on my part to try on learning mandarin i I tried so i got put into chinese school when i was nine years old yeah and by that point everyone in chinese school had already learned four or five years of mandarin and i just felt (sighs) like the old one out again you know yeah and it's tough yeah, I quit that after a year, and I went back when I was 15. Again, if you think about the timeline, I'm, I'm actually never thought about this before, but yeah, it's around the time I was getting bullied, right? Ah, uh, yeah, makes sense. Went back to Chinese school to try and you know get back to my roots and yeah. try and learn Mandarin. And then I quit again when I was 18, when I went to university. Mm. But I do remember during that time in university, you know, hanging out with the Chinese crew when I was like 17, 18, 19. And again, not really fitting in because I didn't really know Mandarin. Everyone was like... Oh, that's the FOB crew, right? Yeah, a mixture of the Cantonese and the FOB crew. Oh, yeah. Um, so different. Yeah. Especially yeah. as teenagers. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, my God. Again, it's tough. Like, you know, I I, I learned like one or two Mandarin songs I could sing at the KTV. <laughs> Tonghua. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I did what I could to fit in, right? Yeah. And I think like, uh, I mean, a lot of East Asians during that time were doing the same thing. Like, I think the Cantonese crew had like... I mean, they definitely fit in with each other, but yeah, definitely not the FOB crew. I think it was hard for me to kind of connect. It's tougher. I think it's actually tougher for them because they are completely, they're not even speaking the primary language Mm, in the UK or the US, right? And then I remember as a high schooler, like, I mean, I don't, it's been a long time since I used this word (laughs) FOB, right? Because we're in Asia, right? But I would look at the FOBs and I would just think like, oh, they're a little bit weird. Mm. It's not. I mean, and I'm immersed in the Asian culture now, right? Because we live in Asia now, but like, that's just, that's what kids do, right? Well, I mean, you got to think about like how many people go and do an overseas study, you know, bachelors and then come straight back to their country. Mm. Some of them can't find jobs. Yes. But I think a lot just miss home or they don't see the benefit of living in a society where they're in this own, their own microcosm, their own micro world where, you know, 
This is the only yeah. place they fit in, right? Yeah, so they're like, why don't I just go back? Yeah. And feel comfortable and speak the language, and then no one's like making fun of me and calling it my father. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we hear more, much more about the people that can't find jobs and like, you know, those kind of people. And we think like everyone wants to just be in America and the UK and that kind of thing. But I think there's a lot of people that just, they come straight back home, right? They just do their education. It gives them a leg up in Asian society and, and come yeah. back and work here. Yeah, I think the thing is, if you're really hell-bent on focused on like career climbing and making money, yeah, you maybe will stay in the US. But for anything else, you probably might want to come back to your home country. Mm. And I think, as you said, that is also what I see. Mm. It's like people just feel more comfortable here. Totally. Yeah. Anyway, so I haven't even got to go into Taiwan yet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that pretty much brings me up to like university and then working in the agency for a year. So I think the time was set here. Right? I think around when I was like 21, I started learning Mandarin again. 22, I think. 22, like mm. 2012. Yeah. And yeah, I think there was this period where I was learning Mandarin every single day, probably like 20, 30 hours a week. Whoa. I was working a full-time job at the time as well. I was literally like going to work. It took me like an hour commute. Mm. I would do flashcards into work and then I would do it on the way back. I would probably spend two, three, four hours at home after I got back from work. Why were you so motivated? I was just embarrassed. Okay. <laughs> I was just embarrassed. I didn't know Mandarin. Shame is a very powerful motivator. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very powerful motivator. Yeah. I never felt like I ever fit in in the uk for a lot of reasons yeah and i think i didn't think i fit into the asian crowd either no. so no i think like it was mainly shame and embarrassment that kind of thing yeah so that's partially why i started too yeah well two reasons for me uh one of them was my grandma at the time was still alive she died in 2019 at 101 so she was wow Coco jeans. I know, right? I'll be, uh, I'll be okay. But um, yeah, I, I just was like, I feel like I should be able to communicate with her before she goes. And then the second one was like, I was just walking around Ximending, and then I just saw this, a group of like, you know, I guess they're international students. They're like white people, and I was like, listening to them. I was like, holy shit, their Chinese is better than mine. I can't, cannot let this be. No, anyway, I right. get that feeling. Yeah, go on, yeah, go on, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. I get that feeling all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I spent probably a year learning Mandarin. And then I think I had this trip planned to Thailand with a couple of friends for two weeks. And yeah. just before I left, probably about two weeks before I left, our company went into like a complete meltdown. And they, they told everyone, like they didn't tell everyone like, oh, we're making these people redundant. They were like, we're going to make some people redundant. So, you know, be wary, basically. Or oh, That sucks. Yeah, it was a bit weird. It was like, yeah. we're having this meltdown. We don't have enough money. So we're going to be letting some people go. So for that week, I was like freaking out. Just being like, okay, shall I become a freelancer? Should I, you know, just go travel for a few months, you know, since I'm already going to Thailand? Um, should I find another job right now? Should I start applying? Right. And so a week later, I come back into the office. And so they bring me in. They're like, hey, Jeff, um, yeah, can you come to the office? And I was like, sure. Sat down. They go like, don't worry, Jeff. We're not making you redundant. <laughs> Okay. Like, Couldn't you cool. say that beforehand? Uh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit weird. Um, yeah. But I had this whole week to think about stuff. Yeah. And so when they when they told me that, something clicked in my brain. I was just like, I don't want to be here. Oh, okay. Wow. I came in the next day and I quit. Mm -hmm. And I basically made my decision. I was going to go to Thailand and I was not going to take my return flight. And I was going to go travel for like six months, whatever. Just like travel and... I don't know, find myself. Like, I think there was like some deep desire in myself to, I mean, I always wanted to travel Asia for a period of time. Like we have yeah. this culture in the UK around 18 to go after you graduate from high school, secondary school, we go for a gap year. Mm. Uh, but I never did that. I went straight into work because I had a job opportunity straight away and I felt like I should go and yeah. do that. And now I have my opportunity to do it. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to do my gap year. I'm going to, I'm going to go travel Asia for six months and spend all my money and I'm going to go back home and work. Oh. Ten years later, <laughs> yeah, we're sitting. With, where are we sitting? We're, we're still in Taiwan. <laughs> with uh, and now you have a wife. <laughs> yeah, I now have a wife. Yeah, so uh, yeah, definitely wasn't planned. Yeah, six months to ten years. Okay, so then you were kind of touring around Thailand, and then you maybe you made the Asia circuit, which is like I guess Japan and Vietnam and Taiwan, right? Yeah, actually, I didn't go to Japan or Vietnam, but I went to Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> same, same, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and then I came to Taiwan, Taiwan. What drew you to stay here over other places? I think it was, you know what? I never really thought about Taiwan as a place that I was going to stay or even rethink really about. But 
one of my friends you probably met at my wedding, um, uh, Hua Zhang, mm. he he really recommended he really liked it here and i think anytime he came to visit he he said he really enjoyed it oh so i decided to come because he was making a trip and i basically went with him and i pretty much never really left yeah <laughs> i mean actually I, I left a month after to go to singapore and i was living with hua Zhang oh. in singapore and we wow. were gonna try and make a company together and then that kind of well it flopped but to be honest before it flopped i was really like you know what? i don't really want to be living in singapore yeah and so i'm just gonna go back to taiwan Singapore is a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit small. Maybe you would some would consider it a little bit stuffy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit too clean. It's too clinical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It feels it's a little like, bit contrived. Yeah. yeah, I think it feels like to me. It's like two things. It's like maybe it feels like a big college campus or something, mm. which is like not bad, but it's also like a strange feeling for me. And then the second part is like contrived. Yeah, it's like it's like a, it's, everything's like too manicured. It's like a Disneyland type of. Yeah, no. yeah, it's it's a little bit of a strange feeling. Um, yeah, and I, I didn't feel any connection. I think I mean, it could have been the people, you know, yeah. I didn't meet the right people. But yeah, yeah. After a month, there, I was I was ready to come back to Taiwan. Okay. Was there any point where you felt like you actually might leave Taiwan? Yeah, explore somewhere else. I don't think so. Actually, like I think after the first year, I was always like, oh, I might go back to the UK in like three months or another three months. <laughs> I was doing visa trips right every single okay. every every ninety days. Right. But I don't think there was like a, I'm going to go live somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I think one of the big reasons I was here, though, is I wanted to up my Mandarin level. Oh, okay. Right. That makes sense. So at least for like the first few years, I think like I was like, okay, maybe I could go live somewhere else, but I still want to keep up my Mandarin. So when I first arrived here, I was doing a lot of language exchange. Okay. Yeah. So that helped a lot. Did you have any language exchange partners that were guys? I may have, but I can't. They don't come to mind. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. <laughs> there might have been one slipped in oh, yeah, acc accidentally. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you still ashamed of your Chinese now? You know what? I think like it will never go away. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I think there's, there's, there's always like you know some foreigner that's been here for like two years and has like the same level with Chinese or better than me, and I'm like, oh, oh that's true. Yeah. So that's true. I I think. My mind is programmed to be ashamed whenever that happens. <laughs> I think. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, that brings me to something I wanted to bring up, which is uh, this trait of being critical. I think self-critical to start with, and then critical of, I mean, others and also the world, which I think is a trait we share in common, by the way. Mm. Yeah, I noticed that. Critical of the world. Just in general. <laughs> because I think it's, it's like, for people like you and me, I think it does serve us quite well in many ways, quite badly in some ways. Okay. You want to elaborate? <laughs> Should I? Okay. Should I elaborate? Uh, yeah. So I've had my business for 10 years. Mm -hmm. You cannot have a successful business without being critical and like noticing the details and like understanding the small thing that makes something good versus something bad. I'm in book publishing, right? So it's just these small things, small tweaks that will make a book sell or not sell at all, like sell zero. Mm -hmm. You get trained to spot that. You get trained to say it. You get trained to deal with it very directly. Mm. Me anyway. So... I mean, guess how that's taken in a relationship. <laughs> right, not, right, right. Not ideal. Yeah. No, I think you're right. So like, I think I'm also very candid. I'm also, I think hey, I'm very frank. And you are. I, this is not something learned. I think, I think this is something almost innate. Since I was a kid, I, was, I remember, mm. I do remember times when I've been like at the dinner table and I've said something, you know, it wasn't even like I was insulting anyone. It was more just like... I was observation, making, right? It was an observation right, about something. Right. But I might have been wrong. It was just something that came to my mind and I wanted to say it. Right. And I said it and my brother or something or my dad, most likely my brother would be like, that's dumb. <laughs> okay. And, it would, and obviously he's quite frank too, but it was kind of right. more like something that comes to my mind and I immediately kind of say it, even though I haven't really, you know, I've thought it through, but it's not like I haven't quite thought it through. Yeah. And so I would be made fun of by you know kids at school or whatever because i would i wear my heart on my sleeve in a way right i would say things yeah. that i felt yeah um without too much thought about how it would be perceived yeah and obviously that can end up being as kind of radical honesty where you end up in you know insulting people <laughs> not not always appreciated yeah not always appreciated yeah but i assume it served you quite well in other ways right i think so i mean like i think it's more difficult to be self-critical 
and I think it's a learned skill as well. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people are very critical of themselves in a way that is almost like like a negative spiral. Like they're, they're not actually necessarily thinking about anything specific, but just like how they will be perceived and like just kind of general anxiety. And I think that's not what I am, mm. but I can see like specific mistakes that can need to be rectified or when I make a mistake like that, I think... I can be self-critical and I think that helps quite a lot like to be very rational about things that are going wrong with your own performance. Yeah. Whatever that may be. Yeah. And and identifying that and thinking of a solution as opposed to like oh no there's something wrong, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a solution focus versus problem focus, I guess. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I remember a couple of years ago you were doing quite well with the like in some rock climbing competition in Taiwan, right? Yeah, I mean, it was probably 2020, made the finals of the Nationals, came fourth. Fourth in the nation, fourth in the country. Yeah. In a, this in tiny a, island country. Historically very weak climbing nation. What goes on the resume is the, the fourth place finish. Yeah. Nationally National. ranked. Nationally ranked. <laughs> yeah, okay. Almost a champion. How long have you been climbing at that point? 2020. Like six years or so. Okay, so six years to reach a pretty high level of proficiency. Do you feel like that was actually your focus of life instead of work for a very long time? I would say for the years I mentioned where I was working maybe like five, 10 hours a week. Yeah. That probably was my focus. So the first like three, four years, I would say from 20, 2017 to 2020, you know, my level probably hadn't increased that much. Mm -hmm. And my focus was a mix of work and climbing. But before that, for the first three years, I think I was very focused on climbing. Yeah. Did you have a goal with that? It was always like numbers based, like I want to get to the next grade, you know, that kind of thing. Oh. Um, kind of superficial goals. Yeah. Um, and also like arbitrary because like so the grade system runs from v0 to, to v17 yeah and you know in the early years when you want to go to like v5 to v6 it's not too difficult in a you know a year right but if you want to go from like v9 to v10 like it gets exponentially harder to kind of make that next step up 9 to 10 even 9 to 10 so where, where are you around now yeah probably around like 10 or 11 it depends on like which country you're in that kind of thing okay i think i've tried bouldering bouldering right mm -hmm. a few times before and it was like because i'm a pretty strong guy i can figure it out mm. in some way but that only gets you to a certain point so what are the traits of an actual good climber aside from brute strength i always like to describe climbing as like this kind of perfect sport obviously i'm a bit biased but um you know how they talk about like golf as being like a very technical sport yeah maybe like bodybuilding or powerlifting is more you know maybe 60 70 percent strength or you know that kind of Power kind of thing. And then maybe something like chess is like, you know, 90% mental, 90% mental. Yeah. Um, so I would say like climbing fits in this, like the middle of this trifecta. Okay, yeah. Kind of like a third, you know, technical, a third strength, and a third mental. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it just means that you need to be a very well-rounded individual. individual. You still obviously need to be strong. Um, but yeah, you need to be very aware of your movement, which is like very technical. And then there's obviously the mental aspect, even if it's, you know, if it's competition, obviously there's like time pressure and competing with other people and, you know, reducing, like trying to control your own emotions, that kind of thing. But if it's outdoors, obviously being able to perform all the way to the top of a very hard climb is also mentally very taxing, especially like every move you make, you're like, okay, if I fall, I gotta go from the beginning again, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think like it sits in this nice middle of um, this trifecta of these three things. So okay. the kind of person you need to be, I feel, is yeah, someone that is very self-critical for you know things like the technical aspect. If you're not mentally strong, I think it's difficult as well. Like, I mean, most humans are afraid of heights, so the higher you go, the more mentally taxing it becomes. Yeah, like even in a like a very short bouldering gym where the walls are only like five meters high. Right. You know, it's still scary to make a move that is, you know, you could land on your face or something like that. Um, yeah, it still yeah. hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you're like a video game character, how do you rate yourself on those three scales? Mm. So, I mean, if it was out of 10, I'd probably be like, if if 10 is the strongest climber or the best climber, yeah. I'd probably be like six on the strength scale, hmm. seven on the technical scale, and probably like six on the mental scale, maybe. That's it? <laughs> well, I mean, this is like... Out of all climbers ever, right? So. Oh, okay. How about in Taiwan? Okay, you just like move the <laughs> move the bar up. Move the bar um, bar down very far. Yeah, probably like seven on the strength scale, eight and a half to nine on the technical scale, and then probably like seven on the on the mental scale. Could you be a two on the strength scale and then eight on the other two scales and be good? 
I think basically it would just limit, like, let's say, like, an overall, like, your overall grade or something out of 10 would say be, like, say, even though you were 8 on the technical scale, you would never be able to get to an 8, a grade 8 out of 10 climb, right? Like, the strength would be a significant, yeah, it'd pull you down a lot. And so you probably couldn't do certain climbs on that were 8 on the technical scale. I see. Yeah. I see. Something we've talked about a lot in the past, actually, I think is therapy, right? Because I think you had a, a certain phase of, I guess you could just call it lacking motivation, lacking purpose, and then I kind of pointed you in some direction, right? Yeah, I think you were going through couples therapy at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, for the second time in my life. That was the second time? I didn't realize. Okay. Yeah. Hey, look, man, when you find a tool that works, you just use the same tool, No, right? no, it makes sense. Good. It yeah. makes sense. Right. So what, what was that process like for you? And what exactly, um, you know, what were you before? Where did you, where were you after? What did you gain from it? So I think like one of the goals in my life has always been financial independence, especially in my 20s. Yeah. And I think it was a goal that, you know, I was hoping I would achieve before I was, you know, 40, 45. Yeah. And so... Being in a situation in my late 20s where I felt like, okay, I guess I'm here now. Mm. Um, I wasn't really ready to accept it in a way. Uh, what does that mean? Yeah. Well, it's like you're in a position where, you know, you've got to make the next goal or you've got to like move on in a way. Oh, okay. I mean, it's, it's with anything, right? It's like, okay, if your goal is to, I don't know, let's say win a powerlifting competition in the national level in Taiwan and you do that, well, what do you do next? Like you've, you've achieved your goal. You can't just keep having the same goal. I mean, you could, but like it's, most people look ahead, right? Right. Yes. And so, well, what's the next goal after that? You, you know, I think I had goals and I was just like maybe putting bigger numbers on them. Yeah. And that's basically like not accepting. You could get to that level and be like, okay, this isn't quite enough. So I'm not financially free and that's fine. Then, then you can, that's different. Yeah. That's different. But if you think you can comfortably are okay on this and this is your goal, then putting another a higher number on it is basically like, it's like denial essentially. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. And I think people do that for lots of various reasons. Like some people do that because they are afraid of what other people think of them. Like, or not afraid, but maybe they want to be like XYZ who have XY number. And, well, that's and, ego and, too, right? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're working towards their ego. But yeah. if it's not about ego, I think... You can be in denial and you don't want to accept it because it's like maybe an integral part of your identity where yeah. you, you spend a lot of your life working to get that promotion or having investments work out or X, Y, Z. And, you know, you don't realize how much that process is literally like integral to your life. Like things that you didn't thought think were related to money are related to money. Yeah. And you only realize that when you've reached a level where you don't have to worry about money anymore. Right. And you realize like, oh, I actually have no motivation to do this thing. And you thought that thing wasn't related to money, but it was. Okay. So you that so that's like the point you were at beforehand, right? You're like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, a little bit. Like I was just kind of, I mean, I wouldn't even, I wasn't even that like direct with myself. I wasn't thinking like, what am I doing with life? I was just like, wasn't really sure what was going on and yeah. feeling a little bit down and not sure which direction to take. Yeah, I, I've experienced something of the same where it's like you have your whole identity tied up in this thing and then you reach this thing and then you're like, oh, that's it. Now what? Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I called my brother at one point. And I was like, I think I'm a little bit depressed. And I think this is like, it's just like, this own, I don't really talk about this much with people in real life and not because I'm a very open person. I would be willing to talk about this, but it's just, yeah. it just sounds kind of douchey. It's like, oh. I'm financially free. I'm depressed. Like, yeah, what, a, what yeah. an asshole. <laughs> who, who, who do you talk to about that, right? Yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. I'm, the only reason I'm talking about this podcast is because I'm not going to know who's listening to this. True. <laughs> True. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of people, I mean, this is my guess. I think a lot of people go through the same process. I and mean, we talked about this as well. Yeah. So it's a pretty difficult situation to be in where like socially and culturally, we've been conditioned to go after, you know, financial freedom and riches and retire and this kind of thing like the ideas of retirement financial independence yeah i mean you know asian culture is all about that it's about stable job and working your way up the ranks of status and power and money and 
you know, that's when you're, you've made it. I mean, we literally, as Asian people, we give each other money. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a tradition, <laughs> right? It's like, this is a good thing, yeah. 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 Well, I think that's, in Asian culture, that's how you, as a person, have value, too. Yeah, exactly. It's how, exactly. it's how, it's, I feel like it's even how my parents value me in some mm. way. It's like, because I've done this, or because I've accomplished this, they're like, oh, he's a good son now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like I think, you know, my, my wife deals with this, you know, internal issue as well. It's just like, the idea of, your net worth essentially is a, it's one-to-one with your value in life, right? Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. It's Which nice. is it's just tough, right? And I think that's just like Asian culture. And yes. You know, it depends on like how much your parents like kind of ingrain this in you, but essentially it is, you know. Essentially it is. Yeah. Essentially it is. That's why they always tell us to study hard, get a good, get a good job and go to, you know, get a good university and all that stuff. Yeah, Totally. So that's where you were beforehand. So how did, what was the therapeutic process for you? I thought it might have been something to do with your relationship with money, but I guess it was more about your identity. I think it's a little bit of both and they're very interconnected. Yeah, we talked about, you know, you, you mentioning your, your couples therapy and in general, we're talking about therapy and yeah, I decided to go see a therapist. Um, again, it was mainly related to being able to talk to someone that wasn't you know, anyone I knew you know someone that would accept me for who I am and just an outlet for for me to speak about these topics where she or he doesn't have a a stake in me in a way true I mean technically they have an incentive (laughs) to not fix you so you keep going but like but generally speaking they have a much smaller stake in you so like a friend has a stake in you to to kind of tell you what you want to hear yeah. because they're your friend and yeah. they want to keep their relationship with you and, they, and they're invested in you as like, you know, you're awesome and like they're your friend because you're awesome and they just want to like make you feel good, right? And so of course. It's, it's tough, right? It's tough. Of course. Um, of course. Do, you, do you remember any uh, big takeaways or like uh, kind of tools that she gave you, he or she gave you? Honestly, like, okay, I think there's a couple things. I think the general therapy, it helped because... Like I said, it was an outlet that I didn't have before. And that could have been anything. It could have been a wall. If I could just talk to the wall, <laughs> like maybe it would have been a bit cheaper. But, um, what you know, I'll tell you what would have been great. It wasn't out at that time, but ChatGPT. Right. Yeah. Oh maybe. my God. They can give you a validating response too. Oh, totally. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, One thing I do think it helped me with is listening to more to my feelings. Okay. And so she allowed me to understand this idea that. So she'd always ask me, how do you feel about X, Y, Z? And I would reply to her and she's like, that's not a feeling, that's a thought. And she had to define this to me, right? And, and I think yeah. this is very like, I think this is very biological. Like males tend to have more thoughts and females tend to have more feelings. Mm. And a feeling is like, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm, you know, depressed, except X, Y, Z. Right. But I don't even really have that many words to describe feelings. And that's probably related to, Could you know, be. I don't actually talk about my feelings as much. And thoughts are like i mean it could be so many things but yeah like it could be like it's usually related to solution yeah you know what do you think about the weather today oh it's raining i'm gonna bring an umbrella right, <laughs> right? right. you're just like right. <laughs> it's very direct to like okay is this gonna affect my life in any way right if it is should i you know bring a backup plan right or something like that right yeah but a feeling would be like i'm feeling a bit down because the weather makes me feel a little bit you know sad or you know a little bit anxious and i think those are basic feelings but like you can get deeper where and i don't think i'm I'm still not very good at this now but yeah you can get deeper to the point where you start to understand like like you need to identify what your feelings are before you think about well think about your thoughts yeah maybe like let's say a friend comes up to you and says do you want to go to i don't know climb a mountain at the weekend and you'd be like i think my first response would be like you know am I free or like maybe maybe I don't have this feeling like I don't want to go but I'm like oh I'm busy then okay but you don't address that feeling of like I don't want to go but why do I not want to go is it because I don't like hiking Mm. or is it because I don't like this friend that much (laughs) (laughs) or you know whatever right like some what that feeling is and it's about really identifying how you feel about a particular situation or circumstance and be able to I don't know, basically see how you feel. It can greater help you direct your own life, right? I don't know. I mean I agree with that, but I'm just I'm like nodding with everything you're saying because I had this exact same process 
I think I might have talked about it before, but it's like, so basically my therapist at one point was like, how do you feel? And I was like, what are my options? Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, <laughs> I don't even have the word. I don't even know what the basic emotions are. Yeah, you don't have the vocabulary to express no. yourself. Yeah. So then you then, have yeah. a feeling inside, but expressing that in words is yeah. very difficult. And then I realized, holy shit, that's like a, what a kid does. That's like what a child does. Yeah, yeah. It's like I feel something and I don't do anything or I can't express it. So it's just like, meh. Yeah, yeah you, you come up, mentalize it, and it's outputted in a way that is like very... I don't know, like you said, it's like, it's almost like treating your relationship like it's a business. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, guilty. Um, so my, my therapist just told me, mad, glad, sad, angry. No, that's not right. Mad, glad, sad, fearful? Oh yes, that's a good one. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah, and then when I kind of graduated to using those four simple things to describe me, I was like, I found something online, it's called Pluchik's Wheel of Emotions. So like, it's like a huge wheel where it's like, for example, you have the four, mad, glad, sad, fearful. And then you have those four. And then each of those four is broken down into like 16 different types of things. Ooh. So you have frustrated, uh, annoyed, or like... It's not the same. Peaked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's different. It's different. Right? Okay. It's slightly different. Slightly different. It's like there's an itch or there's a... <laughs> or something's like tingling, right? It's, something is different there. Mm. So that's, that's also the journey I had to go through. And then, dude, sometimes I still look at that wheel because <laughs> I'm like, how do I feel? How do that's, I feel about this? Yeah, I think that's a really great idea. It's like you're learning the vocabulary to kind of identify your own feelings. And if you don't have that, yeah. well, you're just going to gloss over it, right? It's like... Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know, you... And it's a, it's going to take probably years for us to kind of develop that, but yeah. it's a sensitivity that you, know, you need, right? I bet this helped you in your relationship. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. I mean, my wife was going to therapy for, you know, probably a few months before. And that was one of the reasons, like, I talked to you about this and yeah. I talked to my wife about it and yeah. I think if it works for you guys like why wouldn't it work for me and I think like there's a stigma of like oh if you go to therapy you know there has to be something wrong with you yeah right and you know with my kind of problems I didn't feel like society would not label me as having something wrong with me nah and so why would I need to go and there's also the other stigma of like okay you you have to have something wrong with you so I've never gone to therapy like even when like you do have something wrong with you. You don't want to admit there's something wrong with you, right? So, True. True. Um, but I think the ultimate thing that pushed me over the edge to kind of make that step as well was just like, okay, well, I've been going to like physios and masseuses and having coaches teach me things about my physical body f for years. Right. Why would I not spend the same amount of time, effort, and money on you know the mental aspect of things, right? It just makes too much sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was just like, okay, well, Maybe this therapist won't work out for me, but yeah, maybe it will. And like time well spent, right? Yeah. Do you have any plan to ever go back? Do a tune up or something? Yeah, no, totally. I I went just before my wedding earlier this year, so like about six months ago. But mm. um, yeah, I I've actually been meaning to arrange another one. So this is another wake up call to keep doing that. <laughs> okay. Um. Guess so I think it helped a lot, and you know that was definitely a first step. Okay. You mentioned you had a lot of coaches in physical therapists before uh what were those in pursuit of um i think a mixture of things i think most people go to a therapist of some kind um a physical therapist usually when you're injured yeah and that's kind of where my journey started oh so i okay. think like when i was 25 24 20 i think 25 like when i'd just been climbing for less than a year i had a pretty pretty serious shoulder injury it wasn't too bad like it wasn't like broken mm. but i probably tore my rotator cuff a little bit oh um it wasn't completely torn but you know i didn't have to have surgery but yeah it was like bad enough that like i was in hong kong i remember at the time and i'd uh yeah i went i immediately went to see a doctor who who told me it was slightly torn half torn he would say and that's when I started taking my health a bit more seriously, especially when related to like my physical health. It's a good wake-up call to have when you're young, right? Oh, yeah, totally. If you break a bone, it's a little bit different. It's like, okay, well, I'll just get the surgery or I'll be in a splint for a while and I can't do anything. Yeah. But if you have like something that's kind of half-torn, you're kind of forced to essentially rehabilitate yourself. Yeah. And that process creates this mindset that's very different to like, if I take this pill, I'm going to be better now. Yeah. It's more like you need to progressively overload yourself back up to the level you were at before without pushing yourself too far Yeah, and re-injuring yourself, which I did many times for like probably like nine months. Like I probably, I'm, I'm sure my injury was worse after 
where like I do remember this actually. I was in climbing. We have the the open category and the and the, and the amateur category, and I was competing in the amateur category at the time. I think about a year in, I'd probably torn my rotator cuff probably like a few months before that. Ooh. But I kept on doing these moves that would like slightly. It's called subluxation, where you like half dislocate it basically, like it comes out the socket. Oh my god! And and you feel it go out and go back in again. Oh my god! Okay. Yeah. And I was feeling this periodically, like maybe like two or three times over the year. So in that time, I actually did it in the competition, in the semifinals. And I went to the physio. He like taped me up with all that. Um, what's it called? The kind uh, of flexible tape. Uh, key, uh, uh, kinest- phys- yeah, 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 yeah. K tape, yeah, yeah, K tape. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, yeah, and I went and competed in the finals. <laughs> like the next day. Uh, came second. Couldn't, oh, okay. Good <laughs> job. Was it worth it? <laughs> Was it worth it? Well, I didn't injure it during the finals, but yeah, I mean, I'm okay now. Like, obviously, like, if I'd done some serious damage, I'm sure I'd be uh, saying it wasn't worth it. But I think the point I'm getting at is just that it was a life lesson. Yeah. And I've been injured, you know, in the past. I think I broke my collarbone when I was a kid, uh-huh. like, those kind of things. But if it's one of those things where, you know, you rest for six months and then you kind of restart again, you're better again, it doesn't really teach you much. And right. I think this was a learning moment for me where right. I really wanted to climb, I really wanted to compete. Yeah. And I couldn't. I couldn't go all out. And there was a point where I was, you know, very upset, just being like, well, should I just quit climbing? This is just ridiculous. Like, mm. and realizing that, you know, I'm just being a you know, little baby <laughs> and I just need to like limit myself and be very strict about my rehab. Right. and be very strict especially when i'm like i'm i think i'm like at like a v6 v7 level but i'm only climbing a v4 level because i can't push myself to the limit whilst i'm you know rehabbing right and that's the hardest part right like the, the easiest part is the resting part you can yeah. be sad about not going doing your sport but the hard part is when you can actually climb again you can actually do your sport again and not going all out yeah. and re-injuring yourself yeah Right, right. The hardest part is that you can kind of do it, but if you do it too much, it hurts. Mm. Yeah, I think that taught me a lot. This is a period where I was seeing physios, I was seeing yoga teachers, Pilates teachers. And I think actually the thing that at the time helped me a lot was I went to the UK and they told me to go and do Pilates when I went back to Taiwan. And so mm. I was doing Pilates for probably like two years. And I think that really helped, you know, stabilize everything. Cool. And yeah, it, I think it generated this... Um, interest for me in like anatomy and rehab and physical therapy and just like generally like upkeeping your physical health yeah i think you're one of the people that i know that does that the most because i remember you telling me you go to this yeah you go to this physio you go to this acupuncture you go to this jong like a chinese medicine doctor i was like wow at the time i didn't get it and then i don't know something happened this year when i turned 37 man i'm like i got like a lot of white chest hairs now (laughs) I got a. I have. Well, you've uh, got white chest hairs, but you don't see any gray hairs in your head. I know, right? What the fuck? Not bad. I'm lucky. You're just you're diverting it all to your chest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm focusing the energy there. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that, and then like I got plantar fasciitis in my, you know. Yeah, you told me about that. Yeah, dancing room. Fucking sucks, and that that takes so long to recover, and it's also like. Has it recovered? Uh, ninety (laughs) percent, because I don't stop. Yeah. Because I don't stop. Well, the interesting thing about plantar fasciitis and most of these kind of tendonitis-esque type injuries is that yeah. you can't stop. It's not that, like, stopping won't fix the issue. Oh, true, true. And yeah. one of the things that I learned, I don't know if this is also, it translates to the mental side of things as well, but basically pain doesn't mean, if you don't have pain, it doesn't mean you're not injured. And if you have pain, it doesn't mean you are injured. That's true. And it, pain isn't always bad. mm and so in a situation with tendonitis, like tendonitis is an overuse injury. Yeah. And overuse injuries need to have stimulus yeah. to get back. So what's essentially happening is you have this injury, let's say, in your, to your tendon that attaches to your bone. And it's slightly torn. It's a little bit overused. Like there's basically a lot of this scar tissue that's building up. And you need to go tackle that injury directly you need to feel you know a little bit of pain there so you can essentially trigger your body to go heal it Mm. because otherwise your body gets you like you rest and that scar tissue just stays there and you just have this weak point yeah that when you go back to dancing you're back to step one again because you start to feel the pain flare up like even though you spent like two months resting you're like oh i don't feel any pain right you think you're uninjured, you go back to dancing oh i feel it again like immediately yeah immediately like what's going on and so i think this is like a lesson that a lot of athletes go through where they realize i mean some of them athletes never realize it but like <laughs> pain is not necessarily a bad thing 
yeah. and no pain doesn't mean you're not injured. Right. And so this is a tough thing about tendonitis where overuse injuries, you need to aggravate them a little bit, but not too much. You know, you can't be on a seven or eight pain scale, but a zero is also not doing anything. You're just leaving it there to sit. Atrophy. Yeah. Tackling it directly at the spot, but at the right intensity is something that, you know, you need to learn to do in life, right? It's like, yeah. if you translate that over to like, you know, your career or something like that, you can ignore weaknesses in your own game, whether it's, you know, technical weaknesses in, in what you need to improve to get to the next level. Uh, and you're not going to feel any pain from that, but it's going to limit you, right? You're going to have this ceiling and it may came, come out later. And so being aware and take, you know keeping track of these kind of points where, you know, you do need to go in and like feel a little bit of pain and yeah. go through that struggle yeah. is how you get to that next level and how you, you know, you heal a lot of, you know, wounds. I guess I see it in these two ways, right? It's like with work. It's like, obviously, you're going to go through a lot of pain. You've got to have the, I don't know, you're going to grind for a while. You're mm-hmm. just going to have a lot of 70-hour weeks for a while if you want to get to that next level. And then with relationships, it's like, yeah, you're not going to, you don't have to argue and yell, but like you're going to have a lot of tough conversations if you want to get to the next level. Yeah, and I think, so we're trying to figure out how to like talk about training and I just feel like this is basically it. It's like... Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to enjoy the process. Mm. And that is what training is. It's it's about that process. It's about having a routine, having a schedule, figure out your goals first, and then having a routine that gets you to those goals. Ah, I think it sounds to me like you used to be more goal-oriented. Before you had your uh, identity crisis with your therapist, and then afterwards you kind of became more present and process-oriented. Yeah, and I think like it depends on which area of my life you're talking about. I think I'm still very goal oriented with my physical health and sometimes sports. Mm. But yeah, of course, I'm definitely trying to enjoy the process as well. But also just kind of like making more micro goals, right? You know, the goal is not to be the best. There's like many goals that you you have to get there. And I think applying this idea that if you're disciplined and your work, you have like this regimen that you you maybe do for a few weeks a few months a few years and then you adjust like it can get to you where you want to be yeah that's true um so i think this applies to you know like i said just from from climbing but it also applies to you know like you said relationships that kind of thing right you know you need to have those hard conversations and you almost need to kind of like it's like that type two kind of fun right it's like you need to know (laughs) that like this is tough because this is your weakness. This is something that emotionally triggers you. But you're doing this because you're growing. Yeah. You're building this trust and communication line with your partner. Yeah. And that's going to get you to a level where next time you, you're here in the situation, it's going to feel like a piece of cake, right? Because you have the, that framework built up, right? It's not even a thing, right? It's just like, oh. Who's gonna take out the trash? Like it's already it's already sorted, right? <laughs> right. The cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> Not you or Ariel. <laughs> I think that's spoken like an athlete. Mm. Which is like, yeah, we figure it out beforehand and we prepare, we prepare, we train and prepare ourselves, and then yeah. we're good when it actually happens. I mean, I was joking about the cleaner, but it, it does work with like, you know, let's say you are an athlete, you wanna compete. Do you always wanna be in charge of your entire physical health. I think you need to be aware from the high level what your physical health is at. Yeah. But you're essentially delegating a lot of your things that you're not as good at, like recovery and figuring out what's kind of wrong with you today. Yeah. You're kind of delegating that out so you don't have to put as much mindset on that and you can focus on the things you need to focus on right now, which might be movement, it might be strength, it might be something in your mental game, right? Yeah. Uh, And being able to like kind of automate that part of your athletic process yeah you know allows you to become a better athlete yeah um and i don't think it necessarily needs to be about you know competing or being an athlete it could just be about being the best physical version of yourself right yeah i think so physical mental do you have any mini goals for next year yeah i mean me and my partner got married this year so obviously there's goals around maybe starting a family um Hmm. we'll see how that goes uh career wise i think there's some things that i want to be learning but i realize that i'm not someone that wants to 
be like a big manager. Mm. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of power that comes with being a manager where, you know, you're seen as, you know, like the CTO or the CEO, you, you get a lot of status in that. And I, I think with all of the therapy I've gone through and like the kind of life transitions, yeah, I think it doesn't really interest me to kind of do that. Maybe it would be different if different company, different products or something like that. But for me, I think I'm much more interested in like my craft. You know, you can be an engineer. So I'm a software engineer and right. you can be a software engineer that rises the ranks and becomes like a CTO. And essentially you're just managing people at that point. You're figuring out, yeah. oh, what the human resources we need and like who we need to hire, the performance of all of your team. And who needs to go, who needs a raise. And these, again, it's just like operations. And it's not, you're not a programmer at this point, even though your title is chief technology officer. Yeah. I mean, I got offered that role yeah. at my company this year. Mm -hmm. And I turned it down because <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't feel like that's where I wanted my career to go. Uh, to manage. Yeah. 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 There's something called the Peter Principle. Have you heard of it? I've never heard of it. The Peter Principle is when you... For example, you, you are a great engineer and then you keep getting promoted to a point of where you are very ineffective. Right. <laughs> so right. it's like this thing that happens in big corporations, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and I yeah. think like that was kind of a wake I mean, it took me a week to just kind of think about it. And yeah, I went back to, we call it executive director, but essentially CEO. And yeah. uh, I told him, I think I'd be more effective doing what I'm doing right now where... I'm essentially in this kind of OG status, <laughs> being one of the first in the company, which gives me enough respect and uh, leverage in the company that I can have my opinions heard in different areas of the company, you know, whether it's the product side or, you know, in the more ecosystem, social media side, like yeah. business strategy, that kind of thing. And I think people appreciate my opinion. I like to be able to apply that and if I was managing, I mean, we've only got like six, seven engineers, but let's say we build that team up to like 20, like I'll just be managing people like yeah. most of my time. Right. And I can't apply myself to the product side as much. So. Right. It's actually the perfect mix because you have influence, but less responsibility. Yes. You don't have to say that loud. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just running away from responsibility. I know. I know. Yeah. That's why you ran away to Asia. <laughs> oh, man. This could go much longer, so. Well, we can always have a part two. Let's do another one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Pei. Cheers. Pay